following program contains several mild expletives, all beginning with H, D, or A. It also contains reviews of alcohol beverages. Please use your own discretion in determining whether it's appropriate for family or work listening. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Due to scheduling conflicts and differences in time zones, Ken Fallon was not actually able to join us for the recording of the show. However, we believe that he has some valuable insights unique to an Irishman that we'd like to include here in the show. At the time of the recording, we didn't have any idea of what Ken was going to say here, so we don't comment on it in any way or even take it into consideration because he recorded this segment after we recorded the show. I think you'll agree that the show would have been even better had Ken been on there with us. So I'm going to put his content at the beginning, and then we're going to go right into the show. Hi everybody, this is Ken calling in a quick review of Shadow Magic, this month's book review on HBR's book club. I really enjoyed this book from start to finish. Once it started, as the guy says, once he says Shadow Magic, you're into the book straight away, transported to Chirnan Oak, and the story as it goes on. It's a very safe story, aimed at teenagers, I guess. It's nice to see this setting used as a backdrop to an exciting story. If any of you are familiar with Celtic mythology, quite a lot of the stories tend to be very profound, and Happy Ever After is not a requirement for any of the fables. So as a result, this was it was really nice to be transported to a land I think he really captured the ends of an idea of a place that exists. I really loved the music. Lunasa, the moment I heard it, is one of my favourite bands. Definitely my favourite trad band. Probably number two after Thin Lizzy to be my favourite band. Their music is fantastic and excellent. But of course you have to be into traditional Irish music, I kind of guess. There were one of two points which I'm really hesitant to bring up, but I must say did bug me throughout the entire thing. The pronunciation of the father's name is incorrect. I didn't know what name it was, and and I downloaded the PDF of the book to find out that the spelling was O-I-S-I for the N, and that is pronounced O-Sheen. It's not pronounced O-Sheen, it's O-Sheen, O-Sheen. If you want to prove the point, you can go to www.pronouncenames.com forward slash pronounce and type in O-I-S-I-N and it will tell you that it's O-Sheen. Or you can pick up a phone and dial International 353 and any number and ask them how you pronounce that and the answer will be O-Sheen. So uh, that was one thing that really uh, just irritated me throughout the book and took away quite a lot of enjoyment out of it. But aside from that, some other things. The fact that a Karak is a four-masted ship and a curruck is a type of Irish boat with a wooden frame and again I checked the PDF to make sure that I'm not just nitpicking. And one other thing that I found kind of odd and I'm going to let him have artistic license with this one is the concept of a banshee 
the ban chi is from the Irish word ban, which means woman, and chi means either side, which is like a fairy mound, or chi as in house. Now, we were always taught in school that it was ban chi, which is a woman who would, at funerals and stuff, they would hire old women to cry over the, the person who has died. Hiring is a, is a bad word. They would turn up and you would kind of give them some money kind of thing. But anyway, in every, in every universe that there exists, a banshee is female. Ban means woman. That's it. There is no discussion. So that whole race. And just another thing is there are no leprechauns in Ireland. I don't think I ever heard the word leprechaun at all until I started watching American TV shows because every reference has been to the fairies, which I guess probably mean leprechauns, but the fairies to me are something different. They're one of the two of the Danos or something like that. But anyway, these are all minor little points that obviously nobody else other than me found annoying. And I'm even reluctant to send them in. But hey, I have to do that. It is a thing. That's it. I really am looking forward to the next in the series of this. Hopefully this will turn out to be a series. I'm very interested to see what will happen. With that, I will thank you very much, guys, for letting me put this in at the last moment. And if you want to call in a segment in the US, you can dial in to 0631257495. And in the UK, you can dial 203-432-5879. Just record, say this is for the book review, and we'll forward them on to the uh, book review guys, and they can add them to the show. With that, thank you much, and back to the guys. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Hacker Public Radio. We're back with another audiobook club, and today's book is Shadow Magic. I'm Pokey. I'm Integral. I'm Dan. Shadow Magic is written by John Linehan, and it's also voiced by the author as well. So he, he reads the book, and he writes the book, and he picked the people that would play the music that he would use for the book. So he did three things there, which, of course, the group that he has for that is uh, Lunissa. He's uh, John Linehan's from Ireland, right? I believe so. He lives in Ireland. I'm not sure if he's from there. He doesn't have much of an accent. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't. You're right. What's the name of his son that he wrote the book for, Finbar? That I do not remember. I'm pretty certain that's what it is. Shadow Magic is a uh, fantasy novel that has to deal with a family from uh, Tirnanog, which is the mythical Irish land of the fairies. Except the family kind of gets separated due to some drama and whatnot. And so you start off the book in the real world with a father who only has one hand and is a uh, ancient language professor. And a smart mouth son. Yeah, he's a smart mouth kid too. I thought it was really cool how all throughout the book they referred to it as the real world. Yeah. Why do you think he referred to it as the real world versus... Actually, the people in Tirnanog even referred to it as the real world. Why didn't they have a, a word for it or, or something similar like Tirnanog? I'm not sure. I mean, it was certainly a more mundane place, and there's not much else to call it but mundane. But it, from the perspective of the Tirnanogians, you would think that they're in the real world, and we're all in the less real world. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of what I was thinking. I don't know. See, I look at it and say, looking at Tirnanog, Tirnanog is a kind of pseudo-finite place where the real world is an infinite place because Tirnanog has specifically illustrated boundaries that can expand based upon that ruin stuff, but generally has a very fixed 
set of boundaries that he didn't ex- extend beyond those boundaries to say what what exists there, but it seemed to, to be a place that is is more finite as opposed to the real world slash universe. That's a good point. Well, I don't know. Simply because of the the rune thing, I think it's more infinite than our world is. They kind of go into the fact that there's still areas that really haven't been explored fully yet. But that's based upon ruins coming into existence. Yeah, when a new rune is chosen, when someone chooses a new rune, then a new piece of the land rises up from the ocean, because Tirnanog is an island, they said. Yeah. And also, it's a vehicle to differentiate Tirnanog and the, quote, real world to the reader who's in the, quote, real world. I think it's really interesting that one of the ways that he describes the difference between Tirnanog and the real world is that the real world, in his eyes, has like a film over it all the time. And so everything kind of has a shade of gray. It sure does. Well, especially compared to Tirnanog, especially how he describes it. I mean, with certain exceptions, a not really horrible thing happens to him, sort of. Well, that's a common theme used throughout these kind of stories. You know, it was done in Narnia, and it's done in other fantasy books where the main character travels from the, quote, real world into the fantasy world. And that said fantasy world is more colorful, more pure, and increases the main character's vitality and strength just by the mere presence of its pureness. This is a theme that goes all the way back to, like, Middle English writers. I've been listening to a podcast called The Tolkien Professor, which I highly recommend, and he talks about this all the time, that when people passed into the land of fairy, things changed, things were more real, things were more beautiful, more vitality, that kind of thing. So it's it's an old tradition that Lenahan is carrying on with this, which is pretty cool. Is Tirnanog, is that something he made up, or is that actually a mythical fairyland? Tirnanog is an actual mythical fairyland. Depending on who you hear about it from, it differs from his interpretation to probably every other person in the world's interpretation of the place. It was also different when it was written about. From what I gathered, the ancient Celts called it Tirnanog, the Middle English called it fairy. So it just it's it's a place that people have been writing about for a long, long time, and everyone seems to have a slightly different take on how it works. At least one of the Canterbury tales, even, is uh, is based in there, and a lot of the King Arthur's tales are based in fairy, or interactions with fairies, which are not necessarily little winged creatures. In fact, they almost never are back then. Yeah, they're actually kind of demons back then, to an extent, or at least more certainly close to, like, the pup character from, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yep, all the characters in Midsummer Night's Dream were all fairies. Puck and Oberon and all of them. You had mentioned that the author wrote it, voiced it, and chose the music for it. Um, One of the things I wanted to say about that, that the music in particular, uh, I thought the music was fitting. I thought it, you know, the music was good, but I definitely got sick of that music. Did you really? I loved it. Every time I heard it, I loved it. Really? Well, I started to dislike the music, not because I didn't like it, but because it was signifying that like the chapter was over, and so that meant that there was less of the book for me to hear. There was definitely a Pavlovian response to hearing the music. I just got I got sick of it. I did. I just it, it was the same thing over and over again, that little blue whatever, you know. It was it was all right. It's just you know, it's not my favorite kind of music and I got sick of it because it was the same thing every chapter. I can understand that, but I love that kind of music. I could listen to that all day. But I did actually have a problem with the music. 
I've listened to the book so many times because I've listened to it on my own and with the kids and then again for this show. And when I listen to it with the kids, I'm usually listening to it in the car. And over the car stereo, that music is literally like 10 decibels louder than everything else. It's ear splitting when it happens. You know, you're right. And maybe that was another part of the reason I didn't like it because I did notice that I was going to say that it, it just, it was very intrusive a lot of the times because that's how we listen to it on a trip. Yeah, I noticed that the the difference between his audio wavered a lot throughout the book. So there were times where you'd actually have to turn him up a little and then turn him back down and back up. And then the music would play and then you'd want to rip your ears out because they're exploding. I didn't pick up on that so much in his voice, but I picked up on it with the um, in regards to the uh, to the music, though. Except for actually, you know what, you're right. He does kind of he'll kind of talk quiet and then he'll shout at you to make a point. If that's what you're talking about, then, yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing for him to have done. It's just I also hate going to a movie where they whisper and then you can barely hear the whisper. And then there's just huge explosion noises all the time everywhere as well. I don't know. I really like the audio to be really level the whole time. Yeah, I was just going to say, I wonder how different it would be if you ran it through a compressor first. He may have. We don't know his setup. Yeah, but you still can. Yeah, that's true. He called me. He said he was using uh, a Windows Vista with... um... Windows Media Player and the plugins for that to even it out. That's why it didn't work out too well. Did he really call you and say that, Dan? <laughs> what do you think? No, he didn't. I mean, aside from that, I mean, I really enjoyed the the quality of the book, though. I, that, the music bothered me a little bit, but it wasn't enough to detract from how much I enjoyed the book. Yeah. Now, what was the one thing he did integral that made the book work for you the most? What was it that he, that added back to everything? Every time he said the word shadow magic, especially at the beginning of every chapter or every track. We kind of talked about this earlier today in IRC, and I likened it to being like the the special lighting effects that you'd get at like a Space Mountain roller coaster, where the ride would be the same without all the strobe lights and, and special effects lights, but the experience would be different. When he said shadow magic at the beginning of every every recording, it did. It, it set the mood, it got you going, it got you wound up, and it got you ready to listen for the story. And it was right after he'd left you with a cliffhanger, so you're dying to hear more of it anyway. Yes, it's kind of what I was going to say earlier is, you know, you got the Pavlovian response of being sad because the music's playing, but then you get that next track and it really gets you going when he says shadow magic. Because he says it with such enthusiasm and such a tone that it just echoes through you. And then immediately bums Dan out with the flute music. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I see what you're saying about when he says shadow magic. I, I, I do. I agree with you on that. And then the flute music. Yeah. We could have skipped that, my family, but it's all right. I listened to another audiobook one time that I, I had a similar reaction, Dan, and it was so bad I went through like literally 50 episodes and cut the music out because I couldn't bear to listen to it anymore, but I had to finish the story. Yeah, I said to my wife I was going to get her the soundtrack for Christmas. Well, he tells you which one it is. Yeah, if you get her that soundtrack, rip me a copy, will you? We didn't say that. She she did not enjoy the soundtrack either. Uh, you know what? Dane that didn't enjoy it is too harsh. It was just, if there was some more variety in there, it would have been that just like do 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 do. It just got I, I we just got sick of it. It frustrated me because I couldn't whistle along to it. It was just too fast for you to whistle with it, wasn't it? Just slightly. Way too fast for me. 
guess I should start stop harping on the soundtrack and talk about the meat of thing, which was the actual story, which was awesome. Yes, the actual story was really good. You got to see some character development. That's something that's always good to see inside a book. I loved the story. I thought it was one of the most fun stories I've heard on on any audiobook. It was fun. Well, it was fun and it was exciting and it kept you going along with it too. Yeah, I like the pace of it, but what was your impression of the of the main character Connor? It depends on what part of the story that you're talking about. Because at the beginning, you just want to slap him. My impression of Connor was that he could be me or you or anybody. I liked him, but I got a little sick of his smarminess, his uh, sarcasticness after a little while, especially towards the end. I got tired of the uh, sarcastic feel from him about the time that they're going through the U-lands and he starts talking about the U-trees. I mean, he's in this place, he knows nothing about it, and yet he's making jokes. Yeah, like, that's chapter four, man. <laughs> I know. That, that wasn't too... I, see, I, I liked all that. I didn't, I didn't like his jokes. I didn't think they were very funny. Not most of them. A couple were here and there. But it was part of his character. And had he dropped that from his character, that would have killed it for me. It would have made him very one-dimensional. Well, I think so too. But at the same time, I think it could have dropped off as he went through the book and kind of aged a little more. I don't know. I just think he, his, his first reaction to everything is through his mouth. And I think that was just part of his character. I have a question, and I don't recall if this was explained, but generally speaking, if you go from the fairyland, what's the name of it again, Tirnanog, into the real world, and you step on the ground, don't you get trapped in the real world forever, or is it that you die? And how did they overcome that? Okay, what happens is, is if you're from Tirnanog, or actually if you're there, and then you come here, you instantly age to whatever age you would be from living in Tirnanog. So if you were... You know, 20 here, you went to Tirnanog, lived there for 20 years, and then stepped on the soil here, you'd turn 40. And if you were from there, 40 years old, you know, you only aged to like 15, you'd come here, you'd age to 40. Okay. Instantly, which which I imagine would be pretty painful to go from like 15 to 40 years old. And it totally annihilated that guy in the first chapter. He turned to dust and disappeared because he was a couple thousand years old. So guess what we take from that is... He was sent over right about the time he was born, and his father mustn't have been more than 30, I guess. I think the reason that his father survived, because he'd lived a couple centuries, pretty much. The only reason he survived was because of the shadow magic. Yeah, it was never fully explained. He was definitely at least a thousand years old, because that's how long ago Una was killed by Kielty, and Kielty and him are only a year apart. The only explanation that was given and it wasn't even an explanation it's just more mystery on top of it was when they said that he gave up his immortality Uh, okay which is not a fair trade because anyone who steps into the real world gives up gives up their immortality if they stay there so i I don't understand how that worked he didn't explain it yet well from my understanding is is you lose your immortality while you're in the real world because when they go back again it's kind of like they've got it back again with the exception of oisin who Gave it up no matter where he's at. Yeah, that's what I mean, and that's the part I don't understand. Obviously, he had to have given it up so that he didn't age and die instantly, but it never explained how he gave it up or why he didn't get it back. Yeah, I'm just going to say magic. I agree. It's magic. Dan, that good enough for you? Uh Uh-oh, it's magic, Pokey, when I'm with you. Ooh, thanks, Dan. The one thing that I thought was fun, and there's a bunch of little things that, having listened to it so many times, I, I started, like, picking out little things. Like, there's no snakes in Tirnanog, 
but the first thing that happens to him when he gets there is a rat crawls across his foot. That was kind of funny. Well, do you know why there's no snakes in Tiernan Oak, right? They're too small to swallow the rats? They were chased out of there. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what St. Patrick's Day is about, isn't it? Yep. Some of the snakes out of Ireland. I thought that was rats. No, snakes. You're thinking of the Pied Piper. I probably am. Wow, thanks. That's really cool. I'll drink to that so we can do some spoilers. Ooh, sounds good to me. What are you drinking tonight, Pookie? I am drinking Samuel Adams Irish Red of the Brewmasters Collection. I got it in a variety pack, and it is fantastic. And because it's Irish Red, I thought it was also fitting. I would say so. What's your opinion of this beer? Uh, It's delicious. I'm drinking it out of one of my very favorite glasses. My wife bought me for my birthday last year a set of the Samuel Adams glasses which are like specially designed for beer and they're they're actually pretty cool and they're they're tasty they keep it cold just a tiny bit longer but this beer is delicious it's it's fairly dark amber uh, would be appropriate but it, it's it's actually darker than amber it's brown even the head on it is is a dark brown it's smooth it's not very sweet which is cool cuz i don't like sweet beers very much and it's got just a slight, slight hint of like a smoky flavor, almost a bacony type smoke, but not in a bad way, but in a very good way. It's it's delicious. I highly recommend it. Sounds good. I'm also on a Samuel Adams beer tonight. I decided to go with the, uh, hold on, I have to actually read it from the bottle because I'm horribly forgetful and I can't find it on the bottle. Wow. I read mine too. Here we go. Okay. It's the Samuel Adams Noble Pills. It's a light pilsner, which typically I am completely against pilsners. I, I don't like them. The buds and cores have just completely destroyed that for me. But this one's really decent because it, it actually has a, a decent hops flavor to it. And I guess that comes from the what they say they use five different hops in it, all five noble hops. That's really funny that you're drinking that beer because I was going to recommend that one to you. Because I, I like the hoppy flavor? Yeah, it was in the variety pack that my wife bought me, and it was probably my least favorite one in the pack because I'm not a a huge hops fan, but you were, and I was going to recommend it to you. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it goes as far as, you know, being like a a pale ale or even just, you know, an ale that's... But it's still pretty decent. It's got enough to where it makes me happy, but not so much that it's exploding on me or anything like that. How about you, Dan? What are you on? I, too, am drinking a finely crafted beer. Well regarded in Ireland and the rest of the world, the classic Beechwood-aged King of Beers Budweiser. I have drank two of these. They go down smooth and leave you with a nice fermented belly. Go USA! Uh, Dan, that's not an American beer. Sorry. I know it's not American anymore. I'm going to have to say that's not a bad thing. What is the, was it, What was the company that bought Anheuser-Busch? Couldn't tell you. It was a German company, I thought, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember what the name is. Oh, well. Probably the same company that bought the Muppets. It's a good combo. Muppets and Budweiser? Yeah. I was more thinking Muppets and beer, but... Wouldn't they get soggy? That's the point. It's kind of like your towel. You can just suck the beer out of them afterwards. I would have expected Dan to say that. Well. This just goes to show that Integral is as perverted in a pig as anybody else. Well, Miss Piggy is one of the Muppets, after all. Meanwhile, back at the point. I thought Shadow Magic was a great book. Yes, I think we all did. Who is your favorite character? 
My favorite character, I have to say, was Fergal. Fergal was awesome. He was he was great. I have to agree with both of you on that. I really liked him too. I thought that that Fergal was introduced in a really fun way to the book too. I mean, when Connor gets there, it starts off with somebody in his family trying to kill him, and then somebody else in his family tries to kill him, and then somebody else tries to steal his shoes. He tries to stab that person, and then that person tries to kill him. And so he's got three straight family members doing that stuff to him. When I heard that scene and how he's leaning on the the tip of the sword and he's got his arms out to the side of him laughing, all I could picture was Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase? I could see Chevy Chase doing, you know, flapping his arms and laughing maniacally at some crazy thing that should have been horrible. I'm speaking of Connor, but that scene I thought was hilarious. I, I, I thought it was funny every time I heard it. Yeah. I loved hearing Fergal's accent. I loved how he never didn't say what was on his mind. It, 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 was, it was fun. I wasn't stealing your shoes. I thought you were dead, or at least I thought you would be soon. Yeah. Throughout the whole book, they, also, they constantly talk about, you know, the Fergal smile, too, and how he, he's always flashing that to people. And it's just this big teethy grin, you know. I can't think of an example of it other than maybe, like, the Cheshire cat. Right, right. It made me happy whenever he said that Fergal flashed his smile. You know, you can just picture a cousin or a, a long-lost friend, you know, someone you haven't seen in a long time, giving you a smile and trying to make everything, you know, seem all right. And it, it worked for me. It worked for me because I think I actually have a smile that's a lot like that. So it, it always made me smile and then that made me smile more because, you know, I'm smiling like the character that I liked and so on and so forth. That works for me, because if I was in that book, I'd be Connor. I'd be this, this smart-ass, mouthy guy. And Dan, of course, would be guilty. Well, she thanks. He definitely wouldn't be a Raph. If a Raph had dirty, dirty thoughts in his mind all the time, yes, he'd be Dan. I don't have dirty thoughts on my mind all the time, and I really liked a Raph. Well, I was just talking about his inclination to speak. I liked the Raph's character, and I liked the way he spoke. When he spoke, it was well thought. Yeah, he always was poignant. I didn't like how we met a raft. Did you guys like that? That's that's maybe the one thing in the book I didn't really buy. Is how a raft just kind of walks up? Yeah, and completely ignored Connor. I mean, I know he never talked throughout the book, but he really didn't ignore people. Connor didn't have his respect yet. That could be. Although, he did kind of speak for Connor once they got to the uh, party there at the very beginning. And you would think that that would, you know, mean something as if he's holding saying, hey, this guy's with me. Did he do that? Did he speak for him? I know he spoke for Fergal. I, don't, I didn't remember him speaking for Connor. Well, with Fergal, he definitely spoke out and said, yeah, this guy's definitely from Orr. But whenever it came to Connor, they just associated him with him, and he, he's, you know, he kind of pushed that. Yeah, all right. I, I loved the name Orr and Dor and where everybody was from. You know, I mean, Orr and Dor, they rhyme. That's not why I liked them. But I, I liked all the names of the places and how everybody was, you know, whoever they were of the Feely Lands or of Orr or that kind of thing. That was I, I liked that. that. That put me right into the story. It sucked me right in to the experience of it. I hear what you're saying. I would have liked to have a map of this world just to see what it looked like from a visual perspective. Yes, a map would have been nice, because you always got that with your, uh, you know, Middle Earth books. You'd get a map and then a few songs and things like that on there. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, having a map. That would be really fantastic. And, like, it would have the little dotted line for where they had walked and the path they had traced. Yeah, exactly. That way you kind of knew what was going on. You could associate a little more. 
but it, it's kind of hard to distribute that in audio form. Mr. Lenahan, there's the value add that sells your hardcover book. Actually, let me go grab the hardcover book and make sure that's not on there. I was just going to look at the website, his website for the book, uh, shadowmagic.co.uk, and see if there was a map there, but I don't see anything listed about it. I loved the trees, man. If I was in his shoes, every spare minute that I had, I'd be talking to trees. Yeah, I really liked them, too. I mean, they were an interesting element to the story, especially the, um, was it the Mother Oak? Yeah, Mother Oak. See, after hearing the book, it makes me want to go up and hug trees here, even. Well, it makes me want to not hug them here, because I don't know trees. I don't know which one's which, and I wouldn't want to accidentally touch a yew tree. You'd know a yew tree if you saw it. Interesting, because we just had the tree in front of our house cut down today. What a jerk. You're a bad person. It was dead. Did you ask it if you could cut it down first? Many times, and it responded by drop branches all over the yard and all over the cars and threatening to kill people when it went was windy. Dan had a crotchety old tree. Yep. But yeah, it, it makes me want to go find the different trees so I can associate them. I may even end up going to the Arboretum. I actually did do a little bit of that. I went and looked up the, uh, shoot, now I forget what it is, the trees that are in the Feely Land. And I, I looked it up and checked it out, and, and it was really interesting to see the tree, and, and, just, and the kids were interested in it, too. That was really kind of cool. Talking about the Blackthorns? No, it wasn't the Blackthorns. Th those were at the border. They, they bordered off the Feely Lands, but there, there was a tree in the Feely Lands, and I forget what it was called. Alder, maybe? Was it Alderwood? Alders wasn't I don't think that's inside the Feely Lands. That's actually I think that's the next book. Oh, okay, sorry. But whatever. The tree that was in the Feely Lands, I remember when I looked it up, it was a um like it has these kind of long stems that come out with a lot of tiny little little leaves in a row on each side of the stem. And they have these kind of little berries that look like shrunken oranges or something. It, they're a neat looking tree and I know I've seen them around. So it was it was cool to associate them. I, I did have one, you know, one question when I was listening to it again that I came up with. When Connor left his his Hazel staff behind, Lorcan gave him a black a blackthorn uh, banta stick, and I'm wondering how in the world did Lorcan ever get a blackthorn stick? I'm gonna say he asked very very politely. I've never met anyone that polite. I don't think Dave Yates could do that. I think Dave Yates could get Blackthorn. Those Blackthorns are mean. What were you going to say, Dan? You almost piped up. Because he's Lorcan. All right, Lorcan the Leprechaun. Yeah, exactly. Lorcan the Leprechaun. Yeah. Well, I guess he probably had connections in there with the Feely, and I'm sure the Feely could probably get the Blackthorns to give up some of their wood for a staff. No, no one knew the Feely except for... Uh, Connor's mother. No one, no one had spoken them, spoken to them in centuries. I'm just figuring there must be other Blackthorns than the ones at the border. Well, I'm sure there is, but also, I mean, when when the Feely land was cut off, I mean, prior to that, people had interacted with the Feely, didn't they? Yeah, the people, you know, had talked to the Feely and everything. They interacted with them, but they'd just been banished for so long. Yeah, a lot of people thought they weren't even real. They thought they were mythical. They'd been banished for so long. Which is why he gets laughed at whenever he says he's from the Feely Lands at the party, and they tell him not to eat any babies since apparently they've created rumors. That's what they, the story they tell their kids to keep them behaving. The Feely will come get you. Yeah, exactly. 
maybe a, a black form panther stick is like a, almost on par with a U bow. I kind of got the association that that was more what his hazel banta stick was. I don't think hazel was probably so dangerous to get. I, I think that's what Dan means is that the the black thumb was probably very dangerous to ask for, and I can buy that. But then again, Lorca just gave it up kind of easily, though. You know, it's like here you go. Lorcan was a nice guy. He got a bad rap, you know, after setting up that horrible, horrible clothesline. But he he, he was a pretty nice guy overall. I liked him. Yeah, it was good to see him, you know, come back throughout the book. Yeah, not be a complete jerk, like, you know, guilty. What'd you think of Kilty as as the uh, protagonist? Antagonist, I'm sorry, antagonist. He was so perfectly loathable. It, it, it was perfect. Exactly, you can't not hate him. I like how he, he never broke character throughout the entire series and all the stories you heard of him. He was equally despicable everywhere and everyone. I have a favorite line from him. Do you, do you guys do you have a favorite line from him? Because I bet it's the same one. What's yours? I merely stabbed his horse. Exactly, that's mine. It really shows how much of a jerk he is, because he didn't really want to kill his father, but at the same time, he wanted his father dead. But he didn't want to actually be the one that could actually be blamed for it. Well, he didn't want to be blamed for it. He wanted him dead, and he would kill him. But the funny thing is, in, in his mind, I think he preserved his innocence by stabbing the horse. He, he, he justified himself that way. Well, I think he justified himself in the form of being asked by an aleph glass. I don't know what you mean. Well, you know, it, not aleph glass. Um, one of the crystals, like, uh, Essa has around her neck. Yeah, that was the aleph or aleph crystal. No, that's what it was called, but I don't, I don't remember Kielty coming in contact with one. Well, he, at least the way that I thought it was, is if somebody had stuck one of those to his face and said, did you kill your father? He could honestly answer no. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I see what you mean. And in his mind, he really believed that too. You're right. Yep. Yeah, so he's really saving his ass if somebody had asked him that. I mean, yes, he did kill his father. Yes, everybody knew it. But at the same time, he's kind of protecting himself. Oh, I don't think anybody knew it. Um, I, he, he would have killed all the witnesses. Are we going to be giving away the whole book? Yes, we can give away as much of the book as you'd like, Dan. Were you at all surprised that Fergal ended up being his son? Not in the least. No. Were you? Oh, no. Not at all. You can see that coming a mile away. Yeah. I was very surprised that he was the son of the one-handed prince. Yes, that did end up being a surprise. That, and the thing that really got me was that Fergal switched sides so easily at the end there. I thought that that was kind of, you know, against his character. That he would be so trusting of guilty at the end. Yeah, that that disturbed me too, especially given all that gone through and the trust that they established between the three of them, four of them, and then the the ritual, the shadow magic ritual, and how every every like concern was taken to be as pure and upfront and honest as possible. That he would just so readily switch sides right at the end like that seemed a little out of character. Now I thought it was perfect. He was he was so stressed out and he was so out of his element and it's it's the denial stage of grief you know or whatever it's called the, the different stages of, of loss or of grief or whatever it is he was he just happened to be in the denial stage and Kielty's just that good a liar and manipulator 
And still, I mean, after all they had gone through, after, you know, the, the truth coming out, the story coming out, everything, trying to prevent the destruction of the Shadowlands and and everybody on the same page for him to just turn like that easily. I don't know. I, I still I still have a hard time buying it. I thought it was I, I thought it was set up perfectly. I mean, from the the finding out the Kilty was his father to the stabbing, it in his shoes it would be so much easier to believe that all of that was a lie. And on top of it, going into the castle, Connor didn't have a moment of time for him. He I mean, he made that specifically clear. So you can you can kind of see how he might feel that way. I could anyway. I th- I thought it was right in character, right in line with the story. I thought it was I thought it was good. Well, I could see how he would switch, and especially with it being that emotional of a time. But at the same time, it just seems like a real jump. But when you get really emotional, jumps like that aren't too hard. Uh, yeah, I think you nailed it there. It was the emotions. He was a far more emotional person than anybody else in the book, except for maybe uh, Jared. But it. And I think that explains it. I think you're right. You, you nailed it. Still, he had absolutely no relationship except an antagonistic one and a bitter one with his father and the thought of his father, who he didn't even know was his father, guilty. And to turn on his lifelong friend of wrath and, you know, just everything that he had believed in and gone with up until this time, just to turn on it, at, I, I, I have a hard time buying it. Emotional state or whatever, I mean... I don't know. I just it's it was too predictable and it just smacked of of out of character to me. I thought that's just me. I thought it was slightly predictable, but I thought that that kind of led credence to its believability. I didn't think it was like super predictable. Well, it was predictable in the way that you know it was kind of necessary for the story for Kielty to come back at all. Okay, so it was a plot device, and like I said in the last show, I'm a sucker for a good plot device. I found it more believable than the story of Oisin cutting his own hand off. I love that story. I think it's amazing. I could definitely see that happening. I could see me doing that even. Really? The cutting your own hand off? That I bought it right up until that point. Really? I thought that that was, you know, a summation of it. I thought it was a great story, and I thought it was a great piece to like a legend or a myth or a fairy story. So it fit perfectly. But being put inside this story, as well as Lenahan puts you into, and when these characters become so real, I can't picture a real person actually doing that. But they're not really real people. I, I, the fairies, they're not, they're not from around here. That's, yeah, okay, that's true, that's true. But Lenahan did a great job of making you feel like they were. And I did, I did like how he kept putting the story off. He put that off for two-thirds of the book and teased it. That was good. Yeah, it was really nice that it didn't just tell you that right away because it, it definitely wouldn't have been as believable before you knew the Oisin character more. Because what you get from him at the beginning of the book is just this kind of Connor's opinion only of him. And that doesn't paint the best picture of a father. Yeah, he comes off as this very uh, cool, calculating, almost-by-the-numbers kind of guy, protective think before leaping whereas if you know that story portrays him as more fiery hot-headed and and uh jump first ask questions later kind of guy well he knew what was at stake as well he had win the boat race Uh uh-huh so if that meant cutting his hand off for his brother to not end up 
king. That's what he'd have to do. Also, that was in his very early youth, and it paints a good picture of how different he is as a young man than as a grown man. No spoilers for book two there. Did I spoil book two? No, but I came I came close to it. I was tempted. Oh, okay. So there's one character that we've mentioned maybe twice throughout this whole thing that is really important in this book, and that's that's Essa. I don't think we mentioned her at all. No, we haven't mentioned her at all yet, but she was she was pivotal. I could have done without her. Why could you have done without her, Dan? She served primarily as a foil and a love interest to the main character, Connor. I just didn't find her character overly compelling. But she was so hot. She didn't have to be compelling. She was so beautiful. Yeah, and that, that's why. There's a character there just for her looks. Not just her looks, though, but for how taken with her Connor was. He really was taken with her. When he met her at the party, he was totally charmed by her. And that's the power of fairies. Well, that's, you know, just kind of the power of Connor's used to seeing ugly people, and you just don't see that in the land. And then you see Essa, who's, I want to say, like the 10th person he's seen, and she's actually looks like she's his age. That's, you know, that's going to strike pretty hard with you. And she's very friendly to him at first. She really makes a good impression. And it sounds like, you know, in, in the hierarchy of beautiful women, it's Connor's mom, Connor's aunt, and then Essa. Still wasn't overly overwhelmed with the character. No matter how much of a spin you put on her beauty, I don't care. See, the character I really didn't like was his girlfriend in the real world. Yes, same here. She reminded me too much of my ex-wife. Oh, that's that's not why I didn't like her. What, what was there about her in the story at all? I mean, just a few brief mentions. Well, the thing I didn't like about her was that she existed and she prevented my main love interest from happening. Yeah, like like I said, she reminded me of my ex-wife. I think the severed hand vented that more than anything. Wait, severed hand? No, he overcame that. She was still always on that other side of the wall with the knife ready to plunge into his heart and never trusting him because he was thought to be the son of the one-handed prince. All the way up till the end. Even up till the end. And wasn't that... Wasn't that one of the reasons why, like, he just lost interest in her? Or, not lost interest, I won't say that, just felt utterly betrayed by her because of that? Yes, at the end of the book. One would hope so. Yeah, he, he felt totally betrayed. But then again, you know, I, that whole thing with them, everybody being antagonistic towards him, I, thought, I, I like how they kind of kept that up, though. Because you're talking about th- their whole world was at risk because of this one person. And, I mean, I guess, you know, we look at it in this country that if you are, like, given a, give a decade, like this decade now is, is Muslim or, or uh, Islamic, and uh, you're questioned if you are anyone from the Middle East. You know, you're looked at with a skeptical eye by a lot of people in this country who as soon as you know, push you off into some camp or, you know, have the FBI watch you then to trust you. So I like how that concept kind of carried over into the fairy world. And based upon, you know, their beliefs, they weren't trusting him at all. They were ready to to, to string him up and draw and order him. Well, the people that believed inside the, the, you know, future like that, that believed inside the prophecy, everybody else, you know, hey, this is a cool guy. They took him at who he was. 
or who his parents were in some cases, like with Jared. Yeah, the people who believed in the prophecy, when they saw him, they just kind of pictured him with his finger on the nuclear button the whole time. And no matter how great a guy he was, there was, you know, that he's right there. He could just trip and fall and the world would be destroyed. They didn't know how it was going to happen. Yeah, no matter how much he was willing to try to help them and pre- or to fix their whole uh, Kielty problem. Along the way, he had a bunch of prophetic dreams. One of the dreams that Connor had that, like most of the dreams that he had, came true to some extent. Although the the one of the final prophetic dreams was his uncle pushing the button and destroying everything, and this like big bad weapon. That that dream seemed like it seemed so powerful, and but it never really came close to fruition. It seemed like you know what I mean. Like, the way that it ended seemed opposite of the way that that dream went as compared to the other dreams he had. Maybe. I I saw his dreams as being more of possibilities. I didn't think any of them were, strictly speaking, prophetic. I, I thought they just showed kind of possibilities. Yeah, I didn't think they were guaranteed fact. And they were kind of masked at the same time because they weren't straightforward as well. No, they weren't straightforward at all, like the one with Fergal and the cherries, where, you know, the cherry juice is running down Fergal's face, and his tone of voice sounds really, really ominous, but Fergal's got the giant grin on his face while it's happening. Yeah. I found the whole disabling of the uh, doomsday weapon rather uh, benign, very unsatisfying for some reason. I don't know why. I expected there to be more of a struggle on that, and it was just uh, dig a hole and sever the, uh, the gold circle they had to make some spikes out of the gold too i don't know i wanted more i wanted more battle i guess there really wasn't much of a a climactic battle at the end like a big war type thing was there i'm trying to remember what what was there there really wasn't they do kind of just gloss over the fights in this there wasn't enough of an army to have a big battle i guess that has to be what it is is that the uh army of the red hand was so small that they couldn't really have a a final battle. Yeah, they they would not have won militarily. If I, I mentioned the the Tolkien professor already, Dan, but if you were listening to that guy, he, I think he would say that what you were expecting out of this was some kind of a U catastrophe, which is like the opposite of a catastrophe. It would be some kind of uh, you know miracle that would happen and 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 swing the tides to the good guys. Which that's kind of what happened with the whole gold line thing, where they turned his bomb to blow up. You know, just the castle. Didn't it end up being just a castle wall? Yeah. Yeah, it blew out the castle wall. I don't think that was a, that. I don't think that could be considered a U catastrophe, though, because that's something that they planned and executed. They were expecting it. A U catastrophe is something like totally, totally unexpected. Like, um, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, when the black ships show up and they're full of good guys. Oh, so you're saying that a, a U catastrophe is more of a, a Deus Ex Machina? I don't think I'd say that because I don't know what that means. A deus ex is, is kind of an example of where God shows up and just fixes things for you. Is that what you were looking for, Dan? Not really. I was looking more for a big battle at the end. Yeah, he just wanted combat. That actually is my least favorite plot device, by the way. I think it destroys novels. Combat does or catastrophe? catastrophes. I wanted Conan to come out of the field swinging. Oh, I'd love to hear Conan swing. That'd be awesome. Then again, you know, I did enjoy the combat throughout the rest of the book. The challenges with the bandits and 
not the bandits, the banshees in particular. I, I, I like, I'd like to see more of those guys running around. You'll like the second book then. The, uh, the, the scene with the lemon juice in the pummel of the sword, that was great. Oh, you know what? Was that, wait, was that in the second book? No, no, that was in this first book. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I know I was in, I'm about a third of the way, if not more, into the second book. I, I thought that was in the first. Yeah, I like that that fight at the end. I like the fact that when he actually killed somebody, it affected him psychologically. Yep. Yeah, it wasn't, it was just magically, oh, killed somebody, whoop-de-doo. And then that, of course, got easier with time. Yeah. <laughs> I like the scene where uh, he couldn't go on after he killed that first guy, and he just kind of stood there, and the guy ran at him. And his father cuts the guy in half, and the guy's still running. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, it's, uh, who's, the, who's the really skilled combat trainer? Is it Doc? Dahi, yes. Is this the book where they talk about... No, it's the second book where they talk about Dahi and that other guy, right? Yes. That's the second book. Okay, because I really like Dahi. I like some of the weapons that he had. In it. And, and just Dahi was, I thought, a really cool character. Dahi was fantastic, and that training session was great. Yeah, even as with how short it was. I liked the fight where Dahi's telling him, you know, my next attack is going to do this, and you have no choice but to attack me back. That was what I liked about the fight scenes, is how he was describing the parry and the thrust and the swing and what the effect would be of this. I really liked how that went with, with the sword fighting. The Banta sticks, not so much, because... Maybe just because they're not real and, and they're not based in reality. But for the sword fighting, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I liked how he he was not like this ultra, you know, skilled combatant from the get-go. But yet he did have training from his father growing up. So he wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to pick up a sword for the first time. And here we are, you know, fighting off the banshees and uh, and every other evil that comes along. Yeah, how he actually had some training as he was growing up. I didn't like how so many of the Banshees were completely untrained and they were just, you know, rubes walking up. I mean, if you're a mortal, you think you pick up a little something somewhere. You would think in a place where swords and banta sticks are common that they would grow up being trained. Even if they weren't trained, even if, you know, their their parents were lowlifes who didn't take any interest or didn't bother, you'd think at least in in some bar somewhere they'd be talking with their buddies and, and talking about what works and what doesn't. These guys were just, they were clueless. Especially with them being banshees, which in my opinion is a rather combat-oriented, you know, race. They were the protectors of the Western Shore. Exactly. Well, the guys that were chasing them around, those banshees, long hair, was that his name? Of big hair, but yeah. Big hair. I mean, weren't they, uh, aside from big hair, weren't most of them just like bandit kind of guys? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, they were just guys off the street. I mean, put put yourself in, in big hair shoes, okay? You got, you know, 10 or 20 guys serving under you, and they're all completely retarded. They don't know how to swing a sword. I mean, wouldn't even, wouldn't you just like step aside and say, all right, guys, look, here's how to parry. Here's how to block if someone swings at you. I don't know. It just it was weird that they were so untrained for immortals. Anyway, I could I could see mortals being that untrained. Yeah, I mean they've got all the time in the world. I don't know if I, I. I mean, I didn't pick up that they weren't untrained. I got the feeling that like Essa and Arath, Fergal, and even to the some extent Connor towards the uh, latter end of the book were especially trained they they were trained beyond the standard 
um, infantry person. They had like grown up with some training um, by the masters. Whereas, you know, I kind of felt that they just had the one of had, had these been like, you know, uh, Connor's teammates been a Raph, the peasant and uh, Essa, the merchant's daughter or whatever, just like came together without any skills or training beforehand and just picked up what they had along the way, they would have been taken out lickety-spit. I agree with that, except for Connor. He he wasn't trained particularly well. His dad trained him to, to block and to thrust, and he took some fencing classes, but he was by no means a soldier like these other guys had been trained to be. I don't think he was at their level getting closer towards the end of the book. I think he was kind of more on the same par with maybe a simple infantry person, which these banshees may have been. Yeah, exactly, but he walked all over every infantry guy that he fought. Big Hair was his first true match, and that guy was, you know, a leader. Yeah, that guy was going to kick his ass, you know? Not without sand and lime juice. Well, he cheated, but when it comes down to it, life and death, cheating's a win. Wait, did he kill Big Hair, or was that Dahi that ended up killing him? It was Dahi that ended up killing him, but the only reason Dahi stepped in was because he used the lime juice. Yeah. Yeah, I think he would have won that fight, or else Dahi would have stepped in before that. Dude, that's because he's so good, man. That's what he's all about. Smart mouth, master swordsman. I think a lot of it had to do with his sword, too. I mean, he was carrying the sword of Dor. He was carrying the lawnmower. <laughs> right. What's wrong with sheep? Exactly. What's wrong with sheep? So what would you think about the ending, his final choice, to return to the real world? I think he's a moron. It reminded me too much of my ex-wife. Him returning to the real world reminded you of your ex-wife? Did she make you return to the real world? She actually did one time. Yep. I kind of thought that was like, here he is. He finally gets with his mom. Everything's good. He wants to return to the real world because it's more normal. Normalcy he wanted. There is no way I would have even looked at coming back. Yeah, I know. It was It was so blatantly not the right decision. But he, he jumped right into it. You know, like, oh, get some new shoes. Here we go. No, I can understand getting new shoes. I don't think they had very good shoes there. I, I can't imagine being in his position and wanting to walk away from his mom like that. I mean, I can see him wanting to walk away from Essa because he was still hurt. But wanting to walk away from his mom, I, I just, I didn't buy that. And maybe that's just because I'm a mama's boy and I always have been. But I, I couldn't see it. Even his dad. Why would you walk away from your dad like that? Yeah, why would you walk away from everyone that you know that's infinitely better than everybody you know in the real world? Why would you walk away from those apples? Exactly. Mother O. Yeah, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, you know, the internet is great, guys, but, uh, you know, it ain't worth coming back from Tiernan and Og for. I just don't see it. Yep. And what was he going back to, though, too? I mean, without his dad. What... Yeah, he was going back to just his girlfriend. That was it. That's all he had. Now you see my point. And why? Why did they let him? Why? Like, why did his parents let him? Like, what the hell was he going back to? Didn't have it. He didn't even have it. Did he have a job? I don't even think he had a job. No. No, but they let him make his own choice. I mean, that that I can understand. But they didn't send him back with a bag of gold or anything. Like, what the heck was he gonna do? Spend his father's money until he has to go back. Well, I guess that's what happens. I mean, when you read, start reading the second one. Yeah, I mean. I mean, the same could be said if he had stayed in Tiered and Og, what was he going to do? He didn't really have any skills there. I mean, I understand he has a position, but 
his parents can't hold his hand forever. It was time for him to make his own decision. And he would have resented them if they said no. You know, that kind of thing. I don't know. I think he just has so much more opportunity there than he does back here. Yeah, he really did. I mean, if I got sucked into Tiernanog, I'd be the guy carrying, you know, the pee bucket up to the back and forth to the king's chamber. But he's a prince. Yeah, exactly. He's got infinite amounts of everything. Not just the prince, but the prince of the the uh, kingdom that lives on the gold mine. The only gold mine. Yeah, the house that rules the whole land. Yeah. It was, it was kind of crazy. But it, it goes to that point that a lot of times on on patio books, a lot of the stories are what I call fish-out-of-water stories, where you're introduced to a character, and they're in their setting, and they're comfortable, and they're well-adjusted, and all of a sudden their setting changes completely. And usually, on patio books anyway, the fish-out-of-water stories are not very good at least the starting isn't very good because how their setting changes is not believable at all lenahan did such a good job of making a fish out of water story that worked it was perfect he did it the right way and it was it was the right thing to do for the story um none of the other fish out of water stories do that some of them one of them is so bad the girl falls asleep wakes up a million years in the future and everything's different but Lenahan set the story. It was based on him being a fish out of water. I thought it was perfect. So at the end, he just kind of went back to where he was supposed to be. Or at least where he thought he was supposed to be. Not that I approve of his decision. I wish he would have stayed, but he should have slapped Essa across the face and then left. Oh, there's lots of things he should have done to Essa before he left. <laughs> this is not that kind of podcast. Oh, that's not even what I meant. I I was totally taken with Essa. I was I was every time he looked at her and fell in love with her. I was right there with him. I could totally see it there. Yeah, same here. I wouldn't have left, but that's just me. I wish Fergal wouldn't have died. Here, here. I know that was killer. I mean, I would trade almost anybody for keeping Fergal. Heck, I'd trade the main character for keeping Fergal. Yeah, I know. If if book two were just like Fergal's revenge, that would be a good book. That'd be worth it. <laughs> it was kind of a bummer though that you think about it, like throughout the whole book they always wanted to kill the son of the one-armed prince and at the end they do kill the son of the one-armed prince it was unfulfillingly sad i wish he would have stayed alive isn't that what they say like really really good engaging books are books where you are not sure if they're going to kill a character that you're completely taken with though isn't that what they say i don't know who they is but i could have just they could have kept that, and I could have kept the Fergal. Yep. Yeah, Fergal was a really, really likable character. It was great. But it, it, killing him just showed how sad that killing him really was. Well, it kind of showed you how you know desperate everything had to be, too. Desperate's a good word. Because they didn't really, I mean, at the same time, they probably could have helped him. That was the thing. See, okay. That, that, oh, man, I'm glad you said that. That was the thing that got me, because... Hoisin got shot in the chest with a crossbow, and I can't, I can't remember Connor's mom's name, but she was just like, oh, Connor, you know, use the Rothlu amulet and get the heck out of here, and this will be fine. But they just sat there and shook their head about Fergal. Yeah, they just kind of like, well, um, guess he's got to die. That's, that's what I was wondering, was did they decide that they weren't going to help him, or did they decide that he was beyond help? That was... To me, the biggest question in the book. Yep. Deirdre was her name. 
so what do you think, Dan? Did Deirdre decide that he needed to die to fulfill the prophecy, or did she realize that he was beyond help? Because he was still alive when she shook her head. I got the impression that he was beyond help at that point. I think he was mortally wounded beyond help. Because I don't know why they would let him die to fulfill the prophecy if throughout the rest of the entire book they were willing to fight against that prophecy when it was their own son. That was assumed to be. Why would they just turn and let a comrade like that just, especially one who'd been through such horrible experiences, just die? Because it's not their son anymore. Yeah, because the the prophecy at that point was revealed, and these are people who believe in prophecies. Yeah, but to, I got the impression that Oisin and Deirdre would have fought the prophecy. They fought the prophecy for so long, why would they turn around and just accept it now that it, it was no longer their son? I was like, ah, well, okay, I guess it is true. Kill him. I think because the whole time throughout the book, when they talked to when they talked about it, they would either say or at least hint that the prophetess was never wrong. Prophecies just don't always come about the way you think they come about. So I, I think they were reserved to that fact. What I want to know is: is is it impossible for Oisin's hand to get chopped off again? I think not. Maybe his other hand. But either way, Kielty's still missing his now, so it's, you know, less obvious. Well, yeah, but now Kielty doesn't have a son. Yeah, and the world was saved, so the prophecy is fulfilled, and we don't have to worry about that prophecy again. But was the prophecy that the world would be destroyed by the the son of the one-armed prince? Was that it? Not that he would destroy the world, but that he had to die or else the world would be destroyed. They didn't specifically name the son of the one-armed prince as the agent of destruction. It just said that he had to die or else. All right. I guess at that point, I, I don't know. I didn't think Deidre just let him die to fulfill the prophecy. I felt that they, there was no way to save him. That's what I believe, and that's what I'm sticking with, Pokey. Don't ruin my world. Okay. But that's what we're here for. Yeah, I just think the characters are a little more complicated than you're giving them credit for, Dan. And I think it's too late to have not ruined it. Next time you listen to it, you're going to wonder that. Yep, definitely. Maybe I'll just go back and listen to that part. Well, you have the book, Integral. Yeah. Is the book any different than the actual audio book? Or is it like word for word the same? I haven't finished reading the book. It's got some differences, though. I hope it's not word for word the same, because he flubs a couple of lines here and there. And my kids, every time it happened, my kids picked up on it. In chapter two, for instance, he says Aunt Kielty, and I don't think that was intentional. Yes, I, I also picked, and it, it made me go, what the heck? Like you want to write the guy a letter and go, ooh, ooh, fix that before you print it. Yeah, I would hope that he did. Like I said, I haven't read much of the actual book. Not as a criticism, but as a constructive criticism, because you, know, you care about, about the guy, about, about uh, John Lenahan. Well, what I was going to say is it's more of a uh, criticism of a, hey, get your book fixed, because we love your book. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. We don't want people to look at it and go, oh, well, he's got misspellings in there and things like that. That just sucks. Yeah, you don't want people to go, oh, this is what you get when, when you have indie writers. Yeah. Because as an indie writer, he's created a book and a world that far surpasses 90% of everything I've ever read. Yep. He's created a real good book here. He really, really has. And like Dan said, the depth of the characters is is so well done and so complete and so believable. Every one of them, I thought, was was completely believable. I could see this this series of books that uh, he's working on the third one now. By the time the, th the third or whatever he comes to the end of it, it will be like a significant loss. 
in my life and kind of like getting to the end of the Harry Potter series that here, you know, these stories are now at an end and you're not going to get any more, at least not any more that, that are this good. Yeah. And uh, you're going to miss them. Yeah, I didn't read Harry Potter, but I had the same feeling at the end of the um, the Traitor's Tales, Nathan Lowell's books, with the same thing. The characters are, are most of them, I would say, you know, actually all the main characters are easy, very easy to become invested in. They are, and they all, kind well, most of them anyway, kind of reminded me, if not of myself, you know, like Connor reminded me of me, and most of the other characters reminded me of people that I know and care about. Well, I think that's the goal of any author, is to make it to where you can associate with the characters, or associate one of your friends to a character. Most of them don't succeed at that. He, he, he hit that one out of the park. I got to get rolling on my end, but you guys continue on with this magnificence because it's a really good book. I loved it, and my kids loved it, and my wife loved it. Flute music aside, it was awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Dan, for being with us. It was it was really cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming out. Hey, no problem. And the next one, we're doing Handbook for the Criminally Insane, right? We will do that. It's your turn to pick, and that's that's the book you picked, so Handbook for the Criminally Insane. Was that on Podio Books? Yeah, I'll I'll drop you the URL. And none of us have heard this book yet, so we have no idea if it's good or bad or anything. This is the first one that we're doing that no one's listened to yet. True that. I'm excited. But uh, I will talk to you guys on IRC later. So uh, have a happy. And thank you for having me on. Was there anything that you didn't like about the book? Why don't you get started on anything that you didn't like? And I may be able to pick some things up after that. I have to think about it now. I know, it's it's kind of harsh. I didn't write it down. There were things I didn't like while I was listening to it, but looking back in retrospect, they just kind of get washed over by the overall fun of the book. And and I think maybe if I if I had to level you know, if I had to level a criticism at it, the biggest criticism I could I could level would be to say that it was such a fun book that it made it not seem like like a tremendous literary masterpiece. But I don't think that's the kind of book that it was intended to be. Yeah, I don't think it was either. I think it was intended to be a really good story. And it was a good story, and it was mostly believable. You know, except for the, the, the bits and pieces here and there where Connor was so out of place, someone should have pointed out that you know, hey, he's not wearing sandals. Hey, that shirt's funny. Hey, he's not really from a place. He he's dodging our questions. The, the, he kind of washed over that, and I, you know, it's it's boy, it's really hard to criticize this book, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was kind of required though, because he's not from around there, and you can't really uh, just say surprise and expect him to fake it and they're not used to people being from the real world so it's kind of unbelievable so it doesn't even cross your mind okay i have another thing as i'm thinking of of criticisms actually all i can come up with is another compliment for the book i thought that the way he left the book open for a sequel or the ways he did so throughout all the book were brilliant most books Go through a book and tell a single story and leave it at that. And then at the end of the book, some thing will happen that leaves the door open for the sequel. 
but I loved how Lenahan did that all the way through. Like the boars acting crazy was never explained, and the snake showing up was never explained, and all this stuff that is going on that is unexplained. That you're like, okay, he has to get to this in the sequel. I, I like how the whole book was peppered with that. Yeah, the whole time he's building it to where you know there have to be more books. Yep, because he could have left all those things out, and then at the end, oh, Kielty gets away, and now there has to be a sequel. And I, and I hate that kind of thing, and that's not what he did. And I, and I really appreciate that he didn't do that to me. I think that's it. I'm having such a hard time coming up with any criticism without listening to it again and, and taking notes, which I'm not going to do before we hit stop on this thing. Yeah, same here. So I, I'm going to speak for Dan here and say that we, we give this three thumbs up, that everyone liked it. Can I use both of my thumbs, or can I only use one of them? Because I'm, I'm not like Elias, and I actually have two hands here. Wow, we get four thumbs up for the three of us. That's fantastic. It is. Yeah, so um, if anyone's listening to this, and you haven't read the book, and we just spoiled it on you, for once, that's okay, because we did not tell the story that this guy tells. It's still worth listening to, and there is still a sequel that's been built in. This book's been designed as a trilogy. And there are cliffhangers, and there are uh, there is more story to listen to. And I can, can say that the second book, because I've listened to it already, the second book is easily as good as the first book. Minus that he doesn't say Shadow Magic quite the same. Yeah. I have to say that while we may have given away the ending, we definitely didn't give away the journey or the story that goes along with it. No, and you know what? We didn't even give away the ending. Just to say that... You know, I think we kind of mentioned in passing that Kielty got his hand cut off and um, Fergal was killed. We didn't go through anything about shadow magic, how that worked, how the rune choosing worked. So there's still a whole lot of story here that we haven't touched. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this book's, you said it was eight hours long in total? Yeah, I think it was like 8.7 hours is what a, I put it into a playlist is what it said. So it's almost nine hours of listening and it goes by way too fast. Yeah, exactly. What I'd like to say is that, uh, you know, our next book is going to be Handbook for the Criminally Insane. You can find it on Patio Books, and then blame Dan if it stinks. And you can blame me if it's great. Exactly. If people want to join us on these recordings, you know, I think that's totally acceptable. I think we're totally open to that. Get in touch with us on IRC if you're interested in reviewing our next book with us. Uh, or if you're one of the guys on IRC already and, you will, and you're, you're ready to jump in, that's cool. We're using Bumble to record this in, and we're using the latest version, 1.2.3, because all the earlier versions, you heard the last show, it didn't work, as well as this show, obviously. And you'll need a beverage to review. That's, I think those are the three, you know, prerequisites to to hopping on here with us. Uh, Are you you up for that integral? Yeah, definitely. We'd love to have more people. It's definitely more Hacker Public Radio of us. Yeah, it definitely is. And, uh, you know, and of course, if you know, three or four completely other people want to do a book club too without us. That's also Hacker Public Radio. It's just, you know, the next one that we're going to do is going to be Handbook for the Criminally Insane. Well, I think that's all we've got. Yeah, that's all we've got, definitely. Um, I'm just I'm trying to think of a way to wrap it up, and I don't know how to wrap it up except to say thank you for listening. Oh, I see what you did there.
Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. For more information on the show and how to contribute your own shows, visit hackerpublicradio.org. Here where I'm describing what to do.